0: Hey, and grab your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to uh, John 17 today. And if you need Bible, we have a bunch back here we got to kind of replenished on our resource table, so if you need one in front of you, grab it. We're going to be looking at several different passages of Scripture today, uh, but we're starting this morning, John 17, and we're going to begin in verse 20. Let me read this to us. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The word of the Lord. So in the 20 years that I have been in pastoral ministry, I have served in several different local churches, and one of the blessings of that to me has been just the ability to experience ministry in a variety of different contexts. Uh, the first church I pastored was small; it was rural; it was mostly senior adults. I got to learn a lot about like pastoral care and like grief care and that kind of stuff. Uh, the second Church that I was in was the exact opposite. it was very large, uh, very urban, very wealthy I was in a very wealthy part of Dallas um, and then we went to an even larger church with uh, like a more middle-class demographic and in all of those experiences there were challenges. I learned quickly that every church has its problems because every church is filled with people right and, and anytime you get a bunch of people together are just going to be challenges, but man, I I feel like to some extent I've kind of seen it all. I know that's not true, but I was remembering even this last week that with Justin, we were talking about something and it jogged my memory that at one of the previous churches we were at, there was this guy who had written his own translation of the Bible and he uh, carried it around in like this like three-inch, three-ring binder. He like, showed up at church with it every week, and he was livid that we would not preach from his translation of the Bible, um, even though to my knowledge he had no like formal education in Greek or Hebrew or any of that kind of stuff. He was self-taught, no lessons, um, and he just couldn't believe, as one of our church members, that we wouldn't entertain the idea of preaching from his translation of the Bible. Um, I had totally forgotten about that, but that's just like an example, like people who are challenging, people who are upset about things, and you're like, I, didn't even, I never thought in a million years that this would be a thing that I would ha- be having to deal with, um, but, but by and large, all of those experiences, like even with the challenges and difficult people, uh, by and large, most of the things I experienced challenge-wise were fairly small in the grand scheme of things. Normally, they were things that were very contained, and they didn't affect like the whole church in a big way. But then I became a part of a church that was, like, staggeringly unhealthy. Uh, and I feel comfortable talking about this now because that church is in a very different place now. It has like completely different leadership now and things have changed a great deal. Um, but despite all of the problems and challenges that I had experienced in churches previously, I had never been a part of a church where dissension and infighting had been allowed to like seemingly flourish. Um, It was in the leadership, it was in many of the people, like most meetings, whether they were staff meetings, or elder meetings, or like church-wide meetings, were just filled with tension, and often that tension would boil over publicly, and while I had certainly seen people disagree over things over the years, I had never seen just like outright fighting in the church, or like aggressive arguing in public, and that was something that was happening somewhat often, like it was somewhat a part of the culture of the church. And when you have that kind of church culture, it affects everything. I don't know if any of you guys have experienced something like that, but it affects everything. It affects everybody. So when I joined, uh, or when our family joined that church, I was an associate pastor. The church had well over a 1,000 people in weekly attendance, but within just a few short years of drama, that number was at least cut in half, if not more, which, which only served to elevate tensions, by the way. And I was thinking about, like, why did people leave, right, this, this staggeringly unhealthy church? Why did people leave? I think if you polled a lot of the people who left, they would potentially cite a number of different reasons why, like a number of different experiences they had or situations, things that they would point to. But I really think if you could, if you could go down beneath that, uh, that kind of surface level, I think most of those decisions came down to this. This is seemingly the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, but when I spend time with these people, I do not experience the things that scripture teaches should characterize life in the body, the things that should characterize the church, which by and large are the gifts of the spirit, like the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And, and here's the thing. I think the greatest apologetic for the validity of the gospel claims we make is how we live our lives. I think the greatest like evidence that the gospel that we say, the gospel that we claim is actually true for us, is how we live our lives. There are few things that are as compelling as a community that not only espouses the gospel, but truly seems to seek to live the gospel, however imperfectly. And while there is no such thing, as a perfect church or as a perfect community, most of us have highly tuned hypocrisy radars, don't we? we? We know when something is off. And Jesus makes it clear that his intention for his church, his body, is that our love for each other would be one of our greatest forms of evangelism to the watching world. We can espouse the gospel all day long. We can get nitpicky on the doctrinal correctness of our gospel speech or our Bible teaching. But if that is not backed up by genuine Christ-centered love for each other within the church, anything we say has the potential to be null and void. In today's text, Jesus concludes his high priestly prayer, this longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we have, and he concludes it by praying for those um, down the road who will come to know him, um, those who will one day follow Christ and faith and believe in him. And he began, if you remember this prayer, by praying for himself. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of this, Jesus prayed for himself specifically that he would be glorified and that the father would, as a result, be glorified. And then he prayed last week for his disciples, the ones who are around him at that point in time, that they would be one. That's the word he uses, one as he, Jesus, and the father are one. And then today he echoes that prayer. He says basically the same thing over again, but for the church of the future, Um, And he makes one interesting addition that I'm going to bring up in just a minute. Last week we focused on the oneness factor. What is this oneness that Jesus prays for? And and while we might be inclined to think of that oneness as like surface level unity, we all agree, we all get along, we're all kind of holding hands together in some way, I think what Jesus is actually praying for is something deeper than that, um, which is that we would be adopted into God's family as beloved children through faith in Christ. And that that's not simply based on our own work, but it's actually primarily based on God's work. That's what Jesus is talking about, that we would truly be one in the same way that he and the Father are one. And there is a level at which that is sort of a mystical thing. That is a thing that we're going to fully experience and fully understand in eternity future, even though we have entered into it now. And then again today, he echoes that prayer, but for the future church, and again, he he says one more thing that I'm going to bring up in a moment. So, with those things in mind, um, God is working through Christ to save sinners and to make them one with his family for eternity. And this is what Jesus echoes, starting in verse 20. Look with me. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, the ones who are around him at that point. I don't ask just for those guys, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There's that language again, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So Jesus says, Father, I pray for all those who will believe in me through the gospel word of the apostles. By, by the way, uh, I mentioned the Nicene Creed last week and how we pray um, or how we say in the Nicene Creed that we believe in one holy Catholic church. That's referring to that universal body of Christ, that one body. Body of Christ, that we are one in Him. Uh, but then also, as a part of that statement, we talk about the apostolic church. We say one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And, and that's getting here at the notion that the gospel that we believe has been handed down from Christ to His apostles to the church. And so we believe in the teaching of the apostles, as it were, because that was Jesus's teaching handed down to them. Um, So Jesus says, Father, I pray for all those who will believe through the gospel word of the apostles that they would experience that same oneness. Then at the end of verse 23, look at this, end of verse 23, kind of second part of that verse, he gives a reason for why he wants this, and it's this so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the key verse to me here. And I want to talk real quick about three truths that we pick up from this verse. First of all, the oneness that Jesus prays for while perhaps mystical in nature, right, while it is this sort of very spiritual thing being adopted into God's family, um, being one with the Father through Christ, while that's a bit mystical, I think Jesus also is essentially saying here that this is something that other people should be able to see in us or experience in us, um, and I think that to some extent it's supposed to be true as individuals and as a community, as, as, as the body of Christ. Um, so this oneness, again, while it can be this sort of ethereal, mystical, spiritual thing, it's apparently also something that other people should be able to see in us on some level. Then second... This manifested oneness, that's what I'm going to call it, that this unity that we have been brought into through Christ, it it somehow manifests in our lives. So this manifested oneness in the church can lead observers, onlookers, people who are not in the church, to know, that's, that's the word he uses, to quote, know that Jesus was sent by the Father. This manifested oneness, this experience that other people may have of us in the church can lead them potentially to know that Jesus was sent by the Father. We talked about that word know a couple of weeks ago, and in the context of the Greek here in John, it means intimate knowledge. Do you all remember we talked about that? And so it means intimate knowledge, not just like awareness of something like, this may be a bad analogy, but I know that there are people who think we never landed on the moon, like Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> and then there are people, I, I know that there are also people who are normal who think we did <laughs> land on the moon, right? But here's the deal. Um, I have no intimate knowledge of that event. Like, at the end of the day, I don't know with, like, intimate certainty that either of those things... Are poss- like that either of those things happened or that they're possibilities, I wasn't there, I wasn't a part of it, I can make a guess, I can speculate about it, but I have no intimate knowledge of it, so I don't really know with any certainty. Knowing in the context of our passage denotes a kind of certainty that isn't just like possessing information about something. Um, I know that I am Lindsey's husband. I know that I'm Emmy's dad. I know that I love pizza. Like I have an intimate knowledge of all of those things, right? These are things that I possess a sense of certainty about because I possess intimate knowledge of them. Does that make sense? So our oneness with God through Christ can lead others to an intimate knowledge of the truth of Jesus. That's God working through us. That isn't just something we do or that we accomplish. It is him working through us. So third, this isn't just any truth that we're talking here, this knowledge piece, not just knowing any truth. It's the truth, specifically in this passage, that God loves them in the way that God loves the Son. So it's this truth that's being communicated through an outsider's experience of the church that God's love extends to them as well. So like an even deeper level of intimacy, I don't just come to know that Jesus came and died and rose from the dead. I don't just come to know facts about the story of Jesus, but I come to an even more intimate level of knowledge of the truth that Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, that that was motivated by love for me and you. So don't miss this. The oneness of the church, this unity that we have in and through Christ should lead others not just to believe that God is real, but that God has acted to rescue us from sin and death through Christ because he loves us. So, not just coming to know things about Jesus, but coming to this intimate knowledge of Him that He has, God has done something incredible through Jesus Christ because He loves us. Now, just as a quick rabbit trail. I am making a little bit of like an interpretive decision there in verse 23. Look back at it. It says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved, quote, them, even as you loved me. You could read that as Jesus saying that the them there is the church, that other people would see how much Jesus loves the church, and um, that... You know, that, that, that God, or rather, God loves the church as much as he loves Jesus. Like, you could interpret it based on that kind of thrust. I think, though, that the them here is actually the world. That that's the, the kind of the subject, if you view. Know, the world is, is who's being addressed here. Um, and I'm making that interpretive decision primarily based on John 3:16, where John says pretty much exactly the same thing, right? "For God so loved the world," even though both of those things would be true, like, "God loves the world, yes." And he also loves the church, right? Paul says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. So it's not like there's an either-or thing here, but I think the point of what Jesus is praying here is that the world would come to know this intimate love of Christ because they see it in the church. They experience it in the church. So I hope that makes sense. So how does this oneness manifest to the watching world. Well, from everything I can tell, our oneness in Christ should primarily manifest to the world as sacrificial love, both for each other and for those outside the church. And and there are a few reasons for this. Uh, First is that earlier um, in this evening, before Jesus prays this prayer, back in John chapter 13, Jesus, if you remember, they they had had the last supper. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And then what he tells them is that... He had given them a model to follow. And the model that Jesus was talking about there seems to be a model of sacrificial love that I think they ultimately come to understand fully through the cross itself. But after he washes their feet in chapter 13, here's what he says in verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Christ is our example of sacrificial love. That Greek word you know is agape. This sacrificial love of Christ his followers are to love each other in the same way that he has loved them and I think that this is what was made tangible by Jesus washing their feet will you humble yourself will you set aside your pride so as to serve your brother or sister in Christ will you truly love them sacrificially in the way that I have loved you but but don't miss what he said there you are to love one another he he doesn't say anything here about the world and and loving everybody even though he's not saying you shouldn't do that he's starting with their love for each other and then he says by that that love you have for each other by that all people will know that you are my disciples, when they experience the manifestation of your love for each other, which is ultimately rooted in the sacrificial love of Christ, when they see that, when they experience it, then they will come to know that you truly are my disciples. So Christ is our example for sacrificial love. His followers are to love each other in the same way he has loved them. And again, I think the foot washing thing is just a really beautiful picture of what that is all about. Paul the apostle Paul then speaks to this same thing in 1 Corinthians. We read 1 Corinthians just a moment ago. Justin read it for us. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13, which is often referred to as the love chapter. That's where you get the love is patient love is kind verse that you hear read at every wedding you've ever been to. But Paul's not talking about romantic love. He's not talking to couples. He's not speaking at a wedding or anything like that. No, he's talking to the church in Corinth that has all kinds of different issues and problems. Um, A lot of it rooted in immaturity. But at this particular point in the letter to Corinth, he's speaking about like the different gifts of the Holy Spirit. And here's what he says. This is in 1 Corinthians 13, starting at the very beginning. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So, strong words... He's saying the gifts of the Spirit, uh, including the exercising of faith, the practice of extreme asceticism, right? He says, well, if I sell everything I have, um, the willingness to be martyred for the sake of Christ, give up my body to be burned. Like I could do all of those things, and yet they would be meaningless if love is not the primary outflow of my life in Christ. He's even going so far there in 1 Corinthians thirteen as to be hyperbolic. I think, right? He says, "If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy, gone clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith, like who has that outside of God? No one has all knowledge. No one understands all mysteries. No one has all faith perfectly, right? But he goes, even if I had all of those things, but I have." not love I gain nothing I am nothing he says so like that's that's pretty intense and then he wraps up that chapter in in a weird way he says in verse 13 like as his conclusion so now faith hope and love abide they remain he says these three but the greatest of these is love Greater than faith? Like, this is the guy who we saw last week said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Like, so your salvation is wrapped up in faith, but the greatest of these is love? Like, what in the world does he mean? Well, I think this is actually akin to James saying that faith without works is dead. In other words, if you claim great faith, but you are not a person of love, of agape, I don't want to have anything to do with your faith, because real faith is manifested in sacrificial love. And this teaching permeates Paul's writing. If we are people who have faith in Christ our lives should be characterized by sacrificial love. Our relationships with other believers, not just those who attend our particular local body, should be characterized by sacrificial love. Our marriages should be characterized by sacrificial love rooted in the example of the love of Christ. And if there is one ethic regarding sacrificial love that best encounters kind of the upside-down nature of the gospel, it's that our love should be rooted in and reflective of the love of Christ, which is a love that is given regardless of merit or earning, isn't it? In other words, we didn't earn Christ's sacrifice. We didn't earn Christ's love. We don't deserve Christ's love, but he gives it freely anyway. So, so if our love for others is truly rooted in that agape, we can't turn around and then only love those whom we deem, deem worthy of our love or those whom we think are somehow deserving of our love because we are people who have been loved by Christ in spite of the fact that we didn't deserve it. Paul says that that would be, to do that would be the opposite of how God has loved us through Jesus, and that God has shown his love to us, Paul says, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know that he loves us in this sacrificial kind of way? Because even when we were opposed to him, he died for us, right? So what are some takeaways for us today? Um, Just a few things. First of all, don't don't miss the wonder of the gospel itself. Don't don't even though you you know the, the story, even though you know what the gospel is. Don't allow it to become commonplace in your life. I think, and I've talked about this before, but man, I think this is such a danger for those of us who are in the church. Hopefully you are in a church, this one where you hear the gospel every week. Don't allow the like the commonness or, or like the regularity is maybe a better word. The regularity with which you hear that to make the gospel seem just like this everyday normal type thing. It's in no way normal. This kind of love that we're talking about is not common. That's why when people experience it, it truly is transformative. It truly is deeply compelling. So don't miss the wonder of the gospel. Just take a moment, at least each day, if not multiple times a day to reflect on what Christ has done for you and for me and allow yourself like a child to be awestruck by God's love for you through Christ, that regardless of who you are, regardless of what you have done, that Jesus would sacrifice himself for you so that you could be forgiven and reconciled to God forever, so that you could be made one with him. We need to be daily bowled over by that reality so that our sense of awestruck wonder boils over into the whole of our life that it begins to just characterize our nature and our decision-making and our behavior toward those around us don't miss the wonder of the gospel and then second consider consider what it looks like for you to prepare to live sacrificially what does it look like for you to like plan to walk as this kind of person like, let's be real. Like, we're all people who want the, re- the world to revolve around us. Like, if, if we're being truly honest, we, w- we want what we want, when we want it. We want other people to sacrifice for us. That is our sin. That is our pride. But because of Christ, we are called to build lives that are bent toward Sacrificial love. They are bent toward a willingness to be inconvenient. They are bent toward a willingness to be generous. They're bent toward a willingness to extend love so that others will know Christ. But but if you think that's just going to happen with no effort on your part at all, I think you're wrong. And and just a suggestion, I, I, I think that what and I think Paul would affirm this. I think what we fill our heads with and our hearts with is of the utmost importance. I think the things that we're watching, the things that we're reading, the things that we're uh, getting into online, that those things are actually critical in shaping and forming us in essentially discipling us. And, and so I would really encourage you uh, to just get in the habit of regularly, if not daily on some level, reading the story of Jesus, um, as well as things like 1 Corinthians, 13, as well as things like Ephesians 5, 1 through 21, in particular in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul calls out, for example, the incongruence of sexual immorality among those who claim to seek to walk in the love of Christ, right? Like consider the sex scandals that we have seen in the American church over the last 50 years, like have those things served to bring people closer to Christ or to like, is that like a compelling manifestation? of sacrificial love to the world on on the part of the church? Well, of course it isn't, right? Why? Because those kinds of actions, those kinds of things are the opposite of love, right? So what does it look like for you to intentionally structure your life towards sacrificial love? What does it look like for you to, like, make time in your day to fill your mind and your heart with the truth of the gospel and what is true um, of God And then third, recognize that you cannot truly love people outside the church with the love of Christ if you don't first love people inside the church sacrificially. Um, We can get really focused on everybody outside the church, and that's not bad. Um, And yet it seems to be the case here that it has to be, that there's like an order of priority here, that it has to begin with love for each other inside the church, and then we, we have to allow that to like flow out from the local body. It seems to be the teaching here both from Jesus and Paul that if we aren't loving each other well as disciples of Christ that we're going to have a hard time truly loving people in this way outside of the church. Why? Because it seems that if we're willing to sacrifice for those outside the church but not those inside the church then we are not living out the very thing that Jesus commanded to his disciples. Um, Which is, ultimately, that the world would come to know the love of Christ through our love for each other. I do think it can be harder to love people in the church than outside of the church, right? Because we have the messiness of relationships. The closer I am to you, the more I know the real you, and the more you know the real me and the more challenging relationship can be. A few years ago, I was sitting in Starbucks one day, and this guy in snakeskin boots and aviators walked in and handed me a Bible track and did not say a word to me and walked around and handed them to other people in Starbucks and walked out the door. And I was just trying to, like, think about that as if I wasn't already a believer. You know, like, what if I wasn't a Christian and this this guy had just handed me this, this thing? you know, what, what would I think about this? And, you know, in reading a text like this, this week, I was thinking back to that experience and, and just the fact that it was completely devoid of relationship. Um, and that even, even if I read that thing and went, oh man, maybe there is something to this. I, I, I still didn't know anybody like, and, and I had only like really gained like some, like some knowledge that was on the surface level. I've I've gained some knowledge of the story from this thing that I've read. But it seems to be the case that I I really need to experience the church and, and this love of Christ coming through the relationships within the church. So re- relationships are critical, and I, and I was thinking about this guy, like, I, I bet this guy felt like he was sacrificing on some level. I, I have no doubt that he felt like he was doing a good thing, he was doing his duty, maybe, but, you know, maybe he would spent his own money on these tracks. Maybe he, you know, he's given up half of his day to go around and blast Starbucks around town. I don't, I don't know. But... But is that, like, sacrificial love? Like, is that what that, is that what it means for the church to love sacrificially? Um, For us to simply, like, you know, pepper people with facts? I I think God can use that. God is sovereign, and, and God certainly has worked through that kind of thing in the past, so I'm not saying he can't. But man, I really think he's designed the church to be this place where our love for each other, the the beauty of the community, bearing one another's burdens, keeping short accounts with each other, all of those things, that that combined with the message, the truth of the gospel, man, it is this really compelling and beautiful package. And yet, it can certainly be messy within the church, it could be messy in our marriages as well, but recognize that's what makes our love for each other all the more compelling, and that we're willing to bear with each other through the challenges of being close. So... God knows us, doesn't He? Like, He knows What's in our hearts, he knows what's in our minds, he knows our sin, and yet he came for us anyway. He sent Jesus anyway, and Jesus, who knows us, came for us, he, he prays for us, he goes to the cross for us, he sacrifices all so that we might know the love of God so that we might have intimate knowledge of this oneness for which he prays. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace. Um, And Lord, we do not do this perfectly. We do not love each other perfectly. We don't love others outside the church perfectly. We are deeply in need of you. And yet, Father, I pray that we would be compelled by your example um, that we would be um, filled with a desire um, to love each other in the way that you have loved us. And that through that, God, that you would manifest your love to the world. Um, forgive us uh, when we maybe conclude that our role as individuals or as a community is inconsequential or something. Help us to remember that we are your body and that you have intentionally instituted the church uh, for your glory and for the good of the world. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not take that lightly, that we would recognize that those of us who are in Christ, we have a responsibility to the body that we are a part of, to each other, to love, to sacrifice, um, to bear with each other. And I pray, God, that um, that would not be an arduous chore to us, but rather a joy and also a blessing to us as we experience that from others. And I pray in our own church, Lord, that you would continue to grow that spirit within us and, Father, that others would truly see it within us, that people would be drawn to you through the love we have for each other and through the gospel that we espouse. Um, We thank you and we love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We stand.